God of justice has prepared the way for his coming so that you, you his people, can be pure before his judgment. Good morning. Oh. Cries for justice are not foreign to any of us. Sometimes what spurs cries for justice are when what appears like unjust actions are carried out by those in authority. One, consider what's happened in Iran since September 16th of last year. On that day, a young woman, Masa Amini, died three days after being taken into police custody for not wearing her hijab correctly. Her death, thought to be due to being severely beaten while in custody, in contrast with official reports, sparked protests of tens of thousands of Iranians, shouting the slogan, Woman, Life, Freedom. Now, when faced with injustice, some people may take to the streets, others may remain silent but become bitter with authority. But what if we're not content simply to blame the government or blame society for injustice in the world? What about those times we may be tempted to blame God himself for injustice in the world? And if we did end up trying to point our finger at God, I'm not saying that we should, but if we did, how do you think God might answer? One place we can find how God would answer such accusations or questions is in the book of Malachi. So if you have your Bibles, please turn to the book of Malachi. This morning we'll be in Malachi chapter 2, verse 17, and then read on till chapter 3, verse 5. You can also find it printed in your bulletin. Malachi 2, 17 to 3, verse 5. In the book of Malachi, God continues to rebuke the Israelites for wrong ways of thinking about God, for misunderstanding his love, and for not worshiping him as he deserves. Malachi introduced us to the structure of what we call the disputation. And he's walked through more than one disputation in the book of Malachi as God makes a statement. The Israelites respond with a question or questions, and then God responds to their questions and explains further. This morning we see this format at the beginning of our passage. Please listen as I read Malachi 2, 17 to 3, verse 5. You have wearied the Lord with your words. But you say, how have we wearied him? By saying, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. Or by asking, where is the God of justice? Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. 
He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver. And they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old and as in former years. Then I will draw near to you for judgment. I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired worker in his wages, the widow and the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner and do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. In considering this passage together, it's helpful for us to consider what is the main idea of the passage. Hopefully we can take this statement with us into the week and continue to consider what, what God's word is teaching us in the book of Malachi. And so I'd like to summarize the main idea of Malachi 2, verse 17 to 3, verse 5 in this way. The God of justice has prepared the way for his coming so that you, you his people, can be pure before his judgment. We'll walk through this main idea in four points. First, questioning the God of justice. Chapter 2, verse 17. Second, God will come. Chapter 3, verse 1. Third, God will purify. Chapter 3, verses 2 to 4. And fourth, God will judge. Chapter 3, verse 5. Let's begin with point one. Questioning the God of justice. Look again with me at verse 17. Here we have the question and answer debate style format that Malachi uses several times in his book. First, we have God's statement, you have wearied the Lord with your words. This is an interesting statement. God is tired of what the Israelites are saying. It seems that the Israelites do not realize why God would say this of them. And so the Israelites respond to the question, but you say, how have we wearied him? And then God tells them how. We see that God is not tired of what the Israelites are saying because they talk too much. It's not like the Israelites are children who just learn to talk and don't want to stop talking. No, God is tired and weary of the words of the Israelites because of the content of their speech. I think of how a few disrespectful words by a child towards a parent can make a parent more tired than endless happy babbling. The Israelites are like the child screaming out, it's not fair, you're not fair. The Israelites are accusing God of injustice. There's one statement and a question that the Israelites ask that show what the Israelites think of God's justice. By saying, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord and he delights in them. Or by asking, where is the God of justice? In the Israelite statement, they accuse God of delighting in evildoers. It seems to them that the evildoers are the ones being blessed. It seems that God delights in evildoers because they have not been judged. So in the question, the Israelites bluntly ask, where is the God of justice? If God is just, where is he? Why is the world the way it is now? Why are our lives the way they are now? 
Perhaps Israel expected judgment, immediate judgment on their enemies instead of struggling to survive after returning to the promised land. At the very beginning of the book of Malachi, we considered God's love for Israel in choosing Israel and God's judgment on Israel's enemies by punishing the people of Edom. And yet it seems like those who are asking this question, where is the God of justice, are not thinking on God's love for them. They're looking on their surroundings with a sense of despair. Brothers and sisters, there are good and bad ways to ask God questions. In considering how God responds, it seems like this is not a good way to question God's justice. At the same time, we can take comfort in God's patience with his people, even when their hearts were not right. But what would be a good way to ask God honest questions? Consider the question that Mary asked the angel when the angel said that she would give birth to Jesus, who would be called the Son of the Most High. Mary asked, how will this be, since I am a virgin? The angel did not chastise Mary. He simply answered her question, and Mary trusted that the angel's response was from God. We can consider some of the Psalms as well, in which David goes from bringing honest questions before God or crying out to God in his despair before finally ending and proclaiming his trust of God. When it comes to asking honest questions of God, we can also consider Job's questioning of God after God allowed Satan to cause so much destruction in Job's life. Job could not see justice in the situation, and yet he could still say, the Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And as the book of Job unfolds and his questions begin to have a bit of a, maybe an accusatory edge, God does not simply let Job and his friends keep talking forever. God graciously steps in to correct them and to reveal himself to Job. It would seem that there's a point when Job crosses a line and is in need of God's correction. But how do we know when we cross that line? When we go from honest, trust-filled questions to, to blaming or accusing God? And I don't think there's a simple answer for that. But let's be a church that's open with our questions and quick share our struggles in our spiritual lives with one another. One good place to share of your struggles and wanting to to blame God or, or perhaps your doubts of God is in a discipleship relationship with another member at WSBC. Discipleship relationships are relationships in which we seek to, to sharpen one another and remind one another of truth from God's word. And you don't need permission to start discipling someone or for asking someone to disciple you. We hope as a church that these relationships begin organically but if you don't know where to start, talk to another member who has had this experience of intentionally discipling or being discipled by another member. And I'd be happy to help you brainstorm on how to begin as well. Our hearts are deceitful. And we need others in our lives who know us and love us well enough to pray for us, stop to listen and to correct us if we're thinking wrongly about God. The Israelites' accusatory questions show that they don't rightly understand God's justice. But in God's kindness, he begins to correct their wrong thinking. That brings us to the second point. God will come. God will come. 
Look again at Malachi 3, verse 1. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me, and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. Here we read that God will send his messenger. This messenger's purpose is to prepare the way before God. But who is this messenger? Earlier this morning you heard Luke 7, part of Luke 7 read. Here Jesus is speaking of John the Baptist. Jesus said, this is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. Notice when Jesus applies Malachi 3 verse 1 to himself, he is not so subtly saying that he is God. God is speaking in Malachi 3 verse 1. God's messenger is sent to prepare the way for God. And so when Jesus says that God's messenger, John the Baptist, is sent to prepare the way for himself, Jesus is saying, I'm God. The Israelites were wondering where God was. It didn't seem like God was active in the way that they would expect. The answer to their questions is that God would come around 400 years after Malachi in the person of Jesus Christ. Notice the repetition in verse 1 of the idea of God coming. We see that the Lord will suddenly come into his temple. The Lord will come to dwell with his people. The word messenger is used again in verse 1 as it also says that the messenger of the covenant is coming. Now, commentators do not necessarily agree on who the messenger of the covenant is. Some think that this is title is still referring to John the Baptist as it still uses the word messenger. Others think that this messenger of the covenant is referring to Jesus. So in a way, speaking of Jesus preparing the way for himself. This interpretation would make sense if the messenger of the covenant is the same as the Lord who will suddenly come to his temple. In studying this, I'm still of the opinion that messenger of the covenant is referring to John the Baptist. The way the sentence is worded, it's hard to distinguish the difference between the coming of the messenger of the covenant and the coming of the Lord. But since the coming of John the Baptist is so closely followed and connected with the coming of Jesus, I, I don't think this interwovenness is a problem. Whatever the case, the messenger, John the Baptist, prepares the way for Jesus, the Lord. One other interesting observation in regards to the messenger of the covenant is it says, the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. In other words, it seems that the people of Israel still have some delight in God. As discouraged as they were, God still says that this is the messenger of the covenant that they delight in. So brothers and sisters, even when we are down and discouraged, let us remember that our delight is in God. This may not necessarily mean we feel happy in our discouragement, but even in our discouragement, our every reason to delight is in God. Even when we have a hard time seeing where God is working in our world and in our lives, our delight is in God. So consider what it looks like for us to rejoice in God, to delight in Him, even during trials and difficulty. Our delight of God does not only happen in the good times, 
but continues through the hard times. And unlike the initial cynical statement of the Israelites, God does not delight in those who do evil. But we as people have every reason to delight in God. God will come. But what will God do when he comes? That brings us to our third point. God will purify. God will purify. Look again with me at verses 2 to 4. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and fuller, like fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver, and they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord, as in the days of old and as in former years. This section begins with a question. Who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? When God comes, who can stand? The Israelites cry for justice, but do they really realize what they're asking for? When God comes, he will purify his people. God's people are like impure metal that that needs to be heated up so that the impurities are dissolved. Or fuller's soap. Fuller's soap is is something that many of us would be less familiar with. I also wasn't sure when I read this passage at first what what fuller's soap was. It's also called lye. It's added to water, and then the laundry is soaked in this water. This soap stings unlike our modern soaps. Just as fire separates impurities from metal, as the dirty clothes soaked in the the water with the soap, the fuller's soap separates impurities from these dirty clothes or from other laundry. Both images give us a picture of God cleansing his people, purifying them like silver or purifying them to be like dazzling white garments. This process doesn't sound like a, a gentle process, but it's a necessary process. Notice in verse 3 that the sons of Levi are specifically mentioned as in need of being purified. So when we think of the sons of Levi, we think of the priests. A couple sermons ago in Malachi, we considered the sins of the priests in accepting impure offerings to give to God. The priests who should have been setting the standard for God's people to give pure offerings to God instead led Israel in sinning against him. And so it is especially the priests that need to be refined. It's especially the priests that need to go through the refiner's fire that God will bring so that they will be pure as they should be. The very identity of the priest is to be one who is to be holy, to be set apart for God. And as Christians today, we are called to be a royal priesthood. We are set apart to be clean, to be pure on that final day. And it's because the priests are made pure that they can finally offer righteous offerings to God. At this time in the history of Israel, the priests were not offering God the kind of offerings that he deserved. In order for the priests to begin making the offerings that they should, God needed to step in to cleanse them. And once God cleanses the priests, 
They would no longer be willing to bring defiled offerings before God. Instead, holy priests would make offerings on behalf of the people of Israel that would be pleasing in God's sight. Brothers and sisters, let's consider one encouragement and one application from this section. The encouragement is that God does not give up on your holiness. If the Israelites were like silver filled with impurities, if the Israelites were like laundry that, were, that was filthy and dirty, but God would not let his people remain that way. And we can relate to the Israelites, can't we? Perhaps you feel unclean this morning. Perhaps you feel dirty spiritually. And maybe that's because of sin you struggled with this week or, or this morning. But brothers and sisters, don't lose hope. It's true you can't clean yourself up on your own. Dirty laundry doesn't jump into the wash by itself. But Jesus cares about your purity. Jesus cares about your holiness. And there may be aspects of Jesus' refining fire that are not fun. There may be aspects of Jesus' refining fire that hurt. There may be sin that it feels really hard to leave behind. But purity is worth it. Jesus will not allow his royal priesthood to continue in their sins. So praise God when he puts us through the fire or through the wash. I imagine that all of us need more purifying than we realize. The application that I would like to leave you from this section is to consider what makes it possible for us to give offerings that are pleasing to God. So the application is not simply go and give righteous offerings, but first, pursue purity and holiness so that your offerings will be righteous. As Christians, we want to give good offerings, but our good offerings probably won't be something impressive by the world's standards. Our good offerings will flow out of a life that is set apart for God, devoted to God, and committed to holiness. When we talk about holiness, there's always a, a both and. Some of us may be more tempted by a, a let go and let God mentality. Others may be tempted by a pull yourself up by your own bootstraps, kind of works mentality. But as we consider the Bible's teaching on holiness, for example, consider what Paul wrote on holiness, we see that Paul strove with all his might as the Holy Spirit worked change in his life. For example, Colossians 1 verse 29 says, For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. Ultimately, God is the one who works change. But the Christian life is, is not a bubble bath. The refining fire is hot and the hope will sting and the soap will sting. But we will understand why it's worth it on that day when we see Jesus face to face. So as saints, we desire to be holy. So brothers and sisters, let's strive for holiness and spur one another on towards holiness in light of that day. Now thinking on that day brings us to our fourth point. God will judge. God will judge. Please look again with me at verse 5. Then I will draw near to you for judgment. I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, 
against those who oppress the hired worker in his wages, the widow and the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner and do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. God purifies his people, but those who are not his people, God will judge. Earlier in our passage, we saw the prophecy of John the Baptist preparing the way for Jesus. In verse 5, we still see Jesus being spoken of, but this is pointing to Jesus' second coming in judgment. Jesus speaks of those he will be a witness against. We don't know exactly why God specifically mentions these various groups of people who have sinned against him. It's likely that these sins were common at the time of Malachi. It's also likely that in having a wide cross-section of various sins, God is helping more and more people see the seriousness of their sins, of our sins. We have the sorcerers, those who perform magic, often in conjunction with, with false gods or evil spirits. We have the adulterers. Adulterers may also have been divorcing their wives, as we saw earlier in Malachi. Whatever the case, this is a, a clear breaking of the Ten Commandments. We have those who swear falsely, using God's name in vain, swearing an oath and not keeping it, and thus dishonoring God. We have those who oppress the hired worker in his wages. At that time, hired workers would live paycheck to paycheck, which meant one day's wages would give them just enough to live on for the next day. And so if someone withheld a hired worker's wage, that would put that worker in an especially vulnerable position. God made it clear earlier in the law that, that one must not do this. The second part of Leviticus 19, verse 13 says, The wages of a hired servant shall not remain with you all night until morning. In addition to oppressing the hired worker, we also have those who oppress the widow and the fatherless and who thrust aside the sojourner. These different groups of people are the most vulnerable in society. God's law often specifically teaches that the Israelites are to do good to the widow, the fatherless, and the sojourner. While there may be certain things that are different today in our culture compared to the time of Malachi, it would be good for us to continue to be asking ourselves, how do we treat the most vulnerable in society? Are we kind to others even when there's nothing in it for me? And if we're only kind to those who are kind to us, is is that really kindness? And finally, we have those who do not fear God. This last statement seems to encompass all the rest. Sorcerers and those who oppress hired workers are, are committing different sins, but their sins come out of an attitude of not fearing God. If you're a, a non-Christian here this morning and you looked through that list and it seems like you're doing pretty well, in many of those aspects, I want to remind you of, of two things. First, if you're guilty of breaking one law, you still broke the law. If you're guilty of, of robbing a bank, the judge doesn't care that you didn't break any traffic laws on your drive to rob the bank. You still rob the bank. Second, I want to ask you, do you fear God? Jesus will come to judge those who do not Fear God. Do you fear God? And if you don't fear God, there are a couple things that you probably don't understand yet. One is 
God's holiness, and another is your own sinfulness. God is perfect. He is holy. He is separate from us. He is good. And God's standard of holiness is a perfect standard. We're not talking about a sinful police officer and a sinful criminal. We're talking about a perfect God and sinful us. When you begin to understand your own sinfulness, ways that you have broken God's law, that can be of help in beginning to realize you need to fear God. This is not simply an afraid kind of fear. Imagine you stand before a judge and you know you are guilty. You'll have a different kind of fear than if you stand before a judge and you know you are innocent. And all of us are guilty. But that's where Jesus stepped in. We should pay the death penalty for our sins. But Jesus, the God-man, took our place. He lived a perfectly holy life and died the death that we deserve. And then he rose on the third day to show victory over death. In response to this message of the good news, now is the time to repent and believe in who Jesus is. Now is the time to turn from your sins and follow Jesus. And now is the time to begin to understand what it means to fear God. And for those of us who are Christians, this idea of the fear of God should be one that causes us to stop and consider as well. What does it mean for us to fear God? What is the fear of God? A professor of theology in the UK, Michael Reeves, wrote a helpful book on the fear of God titled Rejoice and Tremble, The Surprising Good News of the Fear of the Lord. In this book, Reeves makes the case that there's both a rejoicing and a trembling in the fear of the Lord. He writes that the fear of the Lord is not simply a, a fear of punishment or a fear of danger. This fear of the Lord is in response to all of God's glory and all of God's goodness. So fear of God goes hand in hand with delighting in God. They're not on two opposite ends of the spectrum. For example, Psalm 112 verse 1 says, Praise the Lord. Blessed is the man who fears the Lord, who greatly delights in his commandments. The Bible's teaching on the fear of God is much richer and fuller than what most of us think when we hear the word fear. Often in the scriptures, we see the fear of God in response to God's goodness and God's grace. It's response to God's majesty and every wonderful and, and fearful aspect of who God is. And when we think of growing in the fear of God, it is not simply enough to to focus on our behaviors or, or, or change certain habits. That's not to say that behaviors or habits are not important. They are. But where do we start? It's not enough simply to consider if we're paying our employees well or if we're kind to sojourners, although this may be good fruit from a true fear of God. Reeves helpfully writes, the fear of God is a matter of the, the deeper orientation of a renewed heart, something that causes truly Christian behavior. And so our focus in growing in the fear of God does not begin with our actions. It begins by growing in our, our knowledge and understanding of God himself. It begins by looking on God and being awestruck by his glory. It begins with the heart change that God is working in our lives. And brothers and sisters, what better way to be reminded of God's goodness toward us than in remembering the message of the gospel? 
What better motivator for us to grow in godly fear than in meditating on what Jesus did at the cross? So when the gospel is preached at WSBC, it's not only for unbelievers to hear, it's also for us as Christians to remind on, to meditate on. When we think on the gospel, we're reminded that we had nothing to offer God. We're reminded that we're undeserving of God's grace. We're reminded that we're deserving of punishment. And yet God still showed us love. God still showed us grace. God is so incredibly good to us. Consider the story in the Gospels of the woman who had suffered a discharge of blood for 12 years. She believed that even if she touched Jesus' garment, she would be made well. And in the midst of a jostling crowd, she reached out and touched Jesus' garment, and she was immediately healed of her disease. So when Jesus asked, who touched my garments? The disciples thought this was such a strange question. Everyone was bumping into Jesus. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came, and it says she came in fear and trembling before Jesus, and she bowed down before him. The woman knew that Jesus was good. The woman knew that Jesus healed her, and she came before Jesus in fear and trembling. As we think on what Jesus has done for us in the gospel, let that also fill us with fear and trembling. Let us also be amazed by how good Jesus has been to us, by how powerful God is. Let that continue to change our hard attitude towards Jesus. Those who do not fear God will be judged by Jesus on the last day. But praise God that because of what Jesus has done, God has put the fear of him in our hearts. And may we be reminded again and again of his grace. May we be reminded of his awesomeness in his word and in his creation. May we continue to approach God with joy-filled fear. So where is the God of justice? The God of justice perfectly displayed his justice at the cross. Praise God that his demands for justice were met by his son Jesus. Praise God that he is not only the God of justice, but the God of mercy. And praise God that there will be a day when Jesus will come to judge the living and the dead. Until that day, may we be a people who are growing in holiness and in the fear of the Lord. Praise God that he is doing that work in us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, we praise you for you are just, for you are mighty, you are powerful. Lord, we thank you for sending Jesus. We thank you for what you've done. Lord, we, we do pray that we would be people who spur one another on in holiness. Lord, that we would grow in our, our fear of the Lord, grow in our understanding of who you are, that we would grow in understanding your, your great love for us, your might and your power, your awesomeness. Lord, would that spur us on to be faithful to you during the rest of the week and in the days to come. And Lord, we look forward uh, to the day of Christ's return. In Jesus' name, amen.